everybody welcome back to exploring the Lord of the rings this is session number 263 as we tonight it is going to happen we are finally coming to the end of ring goes south the ring has been going south for really quite a long time um but um it is time for the ring to stop going south as of this evening uh uh kind of amazing to finish a chapter i scarcely remember the last time we finished a chapter but uh <clears throat> but there we go so um i wanted to do uh uh two announcements today um one briefly table setting announcement is uh, a reminder that our next regional moot is coming up very soon in a week and a half Weekend after this, I will be headed out to Toronto uh, for our first ever Canadian moot. It is Maple Moot on the 20th of May out in Toronto at the University of Toronto. Uh, really excited to get out there and see folks out there. Going to be a great gathering from what I have seen. Um, excited to see some of the stuff that with the schedule was just released, which looks really cool. And if you saw the schedule, one of the things you might have noticed on the schedule is I am actually going to, um, as it happens, I'm going to begin working on the project that we thought of last week. I can't wait. Oh, that's the second announcement that I want to tell you guys about. So really funny thing, like literally Wednesday of, uh, you know, so like the day after we had our class last time when I was thinking about like how much fun it would be to look at the photo aesthetic effects of consonantal repetitions and stuff in, in Tolkien's prose. And I was, I was having all those thoughts, right? Um, Literally the next morning, uh, Karita, our regional moot coordinator, was like, so, uh, you know, it might be good for you to give a talk at Maple Moot. Is there anything that you can think of that you might want to do at Maple Moot? And I'm like, how much time do we have? And she's like, maybe quite a bit of time. And I'm like, oh, really do tell. Now, then lots of people submitted suggestions at the last minute. Uh, so I don't have quite as much time as I thought I might. Um, but... Uh, we're going to begin. Um, uh, we're going to begin talking about uh, you know doing some uh, some experimentation. I don't know if we'll be able to do the full sort of exploratory workshop thing um, that I had uh, thought of doing, but we're definitely going to be beginning thinking about and working on uh, some of this uh, Tolkien and the soundscape of consonants idea. Uh, that I was discussing discussing last last time, so uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it was awesome. It was uh, it was it was it was so cool <laughs> to be asked like twelve hours after we'd had that idea last night or last week. Uh, you know, do, is there anything you could think of doing at a moot? And I'm like, yes, yes, there is. So we're gonna get started on this project maple moot so folks um if you um want to join us digitally you can participate digitally um and uh, you can um, help us to be a part of it from the beginning so we'll see maybe to be continued for future moots who knows but 
Anyway, that's going to be a lot of fun. So again, Maple Moot is next weekend, the 20th of May, 2023. Okay. Um, very good. So let us... Um, let us continue back to the text. Oh, you guys are having audio issues? Oh, dear. I'm not seeing any audio issues on, uh, you know, Twitch or YouTube, which is good. Uh, sorry if there are any glitches here in Discord. So, okay. All right. Well, okay. Sometimes things are weird. We'll do the best we can. Let us get into the end of the chapter. That's the second to last end of the chapter. Let this is the end of the chapter. Frodo's legs ached. He was chilled to the bone and hungry, and his head was dizzy as he thought of the long and painful march downhill. Black specks swam before his eyes. He rubbed them, but the black specks remained. In the distance below him, but still high above the lower foothills, dark dots were circling in the air. The birds again, said Aragorn, pointing down. That cannot be helped now, said Gandalf. Whether they are good or evil, or have nothing to do with us at all, we must go down at once. Not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. The co a cold wind flowed down behind them as they turned their backs on the Redhorn Gate and stumbled wearily down the slope. Karathras had defeated them. Okay. Um... Yes, of course, David Michael, I also could not help but uh, pay attention now that I, you know, we were focusing on it so much. I did not think that there was the same richness of um, sort of consonant shaping uh, here in this first paragraph as there was before. But um, the thing that did primarily jump out at me, uh, there were two things that primarily jumped out at me. One was dark dots for sure. Um, dark dots in the distance uh, we get in that sentence, right? Um, which, <clears throat> and uh, and then when I reread the paragraph, of course, dizzy uh, jumped out at me in that way. Um, his head was dizzy. And then after that, we get the dark, the distance dark dots. Um, yeah, the repetition of black specks, of course, that's a mere repetition of the phrase, of course, right? Um, but, um, uh, yeah, dizzy, downhill, uh, distance, dark dots. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. It's not as pervasive, but I, th I, I definitely felt that, um, you know, the first paragraph was definitely brought to us by the letter D. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, the other thing that jumped out at me is... Gandalf's last sentence. Not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. Um, and now, knees and nightfall is not a very strong alliteration, but the, that sentence has a very strong rhythm. Not even on the knees, not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. Um, really, that whole that whole sentence was, I thought, the most intensely interesting uh, from a sound perspective. Not only do we get the three very prominent ends in not, knees, and nightfall, we get the we will wait in the middle. Um, 
not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. And even another, uh, Rin, exactly as you're suggesting. Um, and to a certain extent, even, even, not even on uh, the way, because the way that the next uh, word begins with vowel, right? Um, it's the final sound in the word even, but again, because the next word begins with a vowel, um, you kind of pivot around it, right? Not even on the knees, right? Um, so you, you hear that a little bit more than you would normally a terminal consonant. Not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so, um, Yeah, as I say, Gandalf's last sentence struck me as important in that way. And this was one of the places um, where I did feel that one of the, pri the primary function of the alliteration in that sentence is making connections between words and really emphasizing the internal rhythm of that sentence. Not even on the knees of Karathras. By the way, Rob Inglis misreads this sentence. Um, this has always been on my short list. Uh, like my, it's just a pet peeve list, but my, uh, uh, you know, like my top five pet peeves in Rob Inglis's readings, uh, reading of the Lord of the Rings. <clears throat> this is one. Um, he just, he doesn't stress knees in the way that I think the sentence plainly wants you to stress knees. Um, I believe he places this, if I recall correctly, Rob Inglis says, not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. Um, is there a, a better audiobook for The Lord of the Rings, Gilgal Lady? No, there is not. That is a fact. Okay, anyway, but it's clearly, it's not not even on the knees of Karathras. It's not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. Um... And, um, yes, I do agree. I believe that, um, the image of the knees of, that was used earlier on. I, I remember we were getting some of this, um, uh, sort of body language, the, uh, imagining. So I, I think it was a reference to knees. Um, I can't, um, uh, yeah, the, the sort of personification, not just, to talk about him like a person, right? But actually characterizing the mountain as a body um, was pretty sure um, that um, uh, that it that we that there, there was a reference to knees. Um, yeah. Anyway, um, so um, okay. As I say, the rhythm of the sentence. And the connections, uh, the connection between the knees of Karathras and Nightfall, um, seem to me significant in this sentence. Not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another Nightfall, says, says Gandalf. And one of the things that it really, I felt, it drew my attention to, was the role of night and day here. Is it, in fact, 
that Karathras is stronger at night? Um, did the rising of the sun? Was all of that language about fetching the sun to save us? Um, perhaps more than just a figure of speech? Um, when dawn came, the storm broke. We weren't told explicitly that there was a sort of cause and effect uh, between those two things. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. But anyway, I, 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 I hear that, Bjarna Sonra, and I agree. The primary purpose of his sentence is, uh, let's get off of Karathras now. We're not going to delay even a little bit. Um, but, and, and I, I, clearly, that's, that's, that's definitely it. But again, it, it made me wonder. Gandalf's sentence makes me wonder. Um, would the danger, in fact, be greater at nightfall? Has their escape during the day here been, in fact, assisted by the coming of day? And if they were to linger in the mountains in nightfall, would they become trapped again? Um, again, we're not going to get an answer to that question exactly, but I, th I had never really, I think, considered that enough. Again, especially then with Wade, um, uh, Wade with the comments about fetching the sun and all that sort of thing. Um, but, um, yeah, yeah. Vardendil, yeah, I think you're right. Uh, I think you're right that in that sentence, Tolkien is doing the Anglo-Saxon alliterative pattern again just like Old English poetry. Not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait for another nightfall. Um, it is like that. Yes. Um, yeah, I wonder. Um, we've seen... We've seen this be explicitly and certainly true in the Barrow Downs, right? It was clearly because they waited until sundown that the hobbits got trapped on the Barrow Downs. Had they not taken their ill-fated nap, um, they would presumably have escaped the Downs before dark, and therefore would not have been trapped by the Barrow White. Um, things changed when dark set in on the Barrow Downs. That seems to me fairly explicit, that the power of the uh, the Barrow Whites, at least the power of the Barrow Whites to emerge from the Barrows seems plainly to correlate um, almost explicitly, not explicitly in the sense that we're told that much in, you know, exact prose. Um, uh, but it is um, it, the, the correlation seems fairly clear. Old Man Willow, on the other hand, they, he catches them in the middle of the day. Right, so there doesn't seem to be any kind of obvious suggestion that Old Man Willow is stronger at night, or that kind of thing. Um, remember, there are the nightly noises, um, and there is um, heed no nightly noises. Right, uh, there is a sense that perhaps something is going to—I don't know what—to um, know that they're safe. 
But that whole conversation with Goldberry before they go to sleep almost does suggest that there is something in the night that's going to try to get them. But they have to remember that they're safe, right? Not to be deceived by it. Um, but anyway, apart from that, nevertheless, Old Man Willow is obviously abundantly active during the day, right? Um, is this a case? Are we, in fact, supposed to... Is it just a coincidence that the storm breaks at dawn... They are enabled to escape during the day. And Gandalf says, we got to make sure we get off this mountain before night falls again. I don't know, but I'm not sure that that's a coincidence. That's all I'm saying. Um, and um, any surety I might have had that that was a coincidence, um, I'm feeling less sure about it uh, as we go through here this time. Um Look at the emphasis in the first paragraph. The emphasis in the first paragraph is on Frodo's physical experience, like his actual physical sensations. We've seen this before, right? We sort of began, well, not quite began the chapter, but began the journey, the, de the depiction of the journey within this chapter, um, looking at the way in which the prose was, was frequently emphasizing Frodo's... Um, physical experience, right? His, his sensations that remember that cold cutting wind, for instance, um, here we start with his aching legs. Frodo's legs ached. He was chilled to the bone and hungry and his head was dizzy as he thought of the long and painful march downhill. Black specks swam before his eyes. So he's seeing the birds and he mistakes them for the black specks of exhaustion and dizziness in front of his eyes, right? He is primarily... The, our, our, our primary focus in that first paragraph is on the physical malaise of Frodo, our point-of-view narrator here in this paragraph, right? His aching legs, his cold, his hunger... Um, and tr like we know they haven't slept, right? They didn't get any sleep the night before. Um, he has been experiencing, uh, you know, cold and near, like he came fairly close to hypothermia the night before and didn't sleep, right? Um, uh, they haven't eaten. Uh, they had some miravore, right? But that was pretty much it. Um, we see his spirits low, as well. His head was dizzy as he thought of the long and painful march downhill, right? His, um, s the sensation of, um, dizziness, disorientation, right? Is, is being augmented by his mental and spiritual state here, right? At the thought of the long and painful march downhill, not at the march they'd already done, right? Um, that's not what is causing his, um, weariness. And the transition between what he believes to be black specks swimming before just, again, the mere effect of exhaustion or dizziness, seeing spots, um, and how those resolve to actual spots that he is seeing. Um, the birds, again, um, dark dots circling in the air. The birds which had been really creepy before, right? Um, 
the uh, the birds which had been such a significant threat. This blurring of the line between his own sort of internal sensations, right? Again, he sees black specks and he thinks it's just a distortion of his vision, like his aching legs and um, his hungry belly and his dizzy head, right? Um, and presumably a product of the latter. But it's not just... It's not internal. It's external. The internal difficulties that he's having to overcome are revealed in that transition to be rooted in external reality, right? The external danger to the company. Um, I don't think... I, I don't think that there needs any explanation for Frodo's physical condition other than the ordeal they've just been through. Um, they, um, and so it's therefore, and I, I don't think he's being influenced by anything here, either the ring or the mountain. Um, In the distance below him, but still high above the lower foothills, dark dots were circling in the air. Um, Aragorn recognizes the birds again. Um, the birds again... First of all, this is a very um, understated exclamation by Aragorn. Um he uh, um, he could say more. They had conversation about what the birds meant. There was that whole experience of the close encounter with the birds when they flew over there, you know, with him and Sam. Um, we don't recall any of that. So the, the eeriness of the landscape, right? The eerie silence of the landscape before the birds arrived. And n none of those things are being recalled to us here. Merely Aragorn's statement, the birds again. Um, and the absence of all of those other things, the sense of threat, possibly direct threat from the birds themselves, there were so many, uh, to at least the very significant and indirect threat of discovery that they were so careful about, right, that they were so concerned about um, before, before they went up the mountain. And now, notice how little this seems to matter now. Coming down from Karathros, things look quite different. Things have changed. Gandalf's response, that cannot be helped now. Um, that cannot be helped now. We must go down at once. Not even on the knees of Karathros will we wait for another nightfall. Um, that cannot be helped now. Think of the significance of that statement. That cannot be helped now. Remember the emphasis that Gandalf himself placed on avoiding discovery. 
how important it was not to be seen. And now he is... It's now a, a completely moot point. Gandalf seems to believe they've already been revealed. doesn't matter if the birds see them at this point. Um, if Gandalf is right that he has revealed his own presence, um, you know, from there to the mouths of Anduin, then, yeah, I can understand what he means, right? Nobody needs birds. Whatever the mechanism is by which the birds are reporting back and to whomever they are reporting back, um, it's going to be, presumably, less direct than the exposure that happened already on the mountainside when he lit the firewood. Aranas, I agree. Whenever the birds get there, it will be old news that they were there. Um, after all of the emphasis on secrecy, after how much Gandalf emphasized that now, it's up. Gandalf seems to be assuming that the enemy is going to know that they're there. Um, and again, I wonder if even Karathras himself... Um, we don't know if Karathras is in league with the enemy, as we've said before. Um, we don't know whether there was a pre-existing arrangement between Karathras and Sauron. Um, though, again, that seems to be something that's left open as a possibility. We also don't know what would happen if Sauron, you know, what came and, and uh, uh, asked for tidings of Garathras, right? Um, but by one way or another, through their, through Gandalf's exposure, however, whatever the mechanism of that exposure is, which we, again, we still don't really have much information to understand, um, their battle with Karathras, um, which Karathras is certainly going to remember, and then the birds. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, now, I agree with you, likely, Abad, that, part, that certainly this is an expression of his urgency. Not even on the knees of Karathras will we wait, will we wait for another nightfall. Um, we must go down at once. I have to say, though, I am not convinced that he is merely saying... Uh, the, the comparison that you make, likely, about um, it's like escaping from a fire or flood or something. It's a higher priority to get away than to avoid being seen. I, I'm not sure it is like escaping from a, f a fire or a flood, exactly. Um... That is to say, he is saying that he doesn't, he wants to get onto flat ground, right? He wants to get off the mountain completely before nightfall. Okay, but is that um, entirely incommensurate with stealth? Is there no way, like there isn't even a less stealthy, more stealthy option for how you descend from the mountain, right? Um, uh, <clears throat> It seem, just seems to me that Gandalf of two days ago 
might have had some kind of plan for that, if you see what I mean. Um, but, um, yeah, this is why I think what he is prompting them, whether they are good or evil or have nothing to do with us at all, we must go down at once. He's prompting them to ignore the birds. Um, and the hope that he's holding out, faint, I think, though that hope could be for any of them, that maybe the birds aren't evil, right? Maybe they, um, uh, maybe they don't. And by the way, footnote, when Tolkien uses the word evil, Uh, I believe that he is using that word in a broader sense much of the time. He is using that word in a broader sense um, than we tend to use that word nowadays. Um, we only use the word evil, and we don't use it very often, frankly. Um, but when we use the word evil, we mean something very important by it, right? We mean a... Um, you know, we're talking about bad moral choices, like very bad moral, extremely bad moral choices. Um, the word evil um, in older English usage just meant, could also mean disadvantageous or like things that we just use the word bad for. Um, yes, uh, Bob, the phrase "an evil chance" comes up frequently. Yes, yes. Um, it was it. Uh, um, Gandalf will soon say, "What an evil fortune!" Um, and he's not talking about evil. And he means evil fortune means bad luck. Um, this is common. I, I think, for instance, of. Um, uh, the um, the King James Bible. Um, uh, isn't it the prophet Jeremiah who has the vision of the figs? And there's the one basket of figs that's, that's a really good figs. And there's another basket of evil figs. Um, and uh, it, it, to a modern ear, that sounds a little strange. Like, what can figs do in order to become evil? Right? Um but he just means they're really horrible figs, like disgusting and inedible figs. Um, so, um, yeah, Abbot's junk. That's a great. Uh, you're right. Wicked. When we we don't we we only mean wicked when we call something evil anymore. And the naughty figs. Yes, he uses the word naughty too. They were extremely naughty. I love that. Um, I love that. Anyway, um, so um, evil. It, it, it is. I'm not saying that's what it always. I'm just saying when Tolkien uses the word evil, it doesn't necessarily mean wicked. So when he says whether they are good or evil, I believe he is using the words in that in that broader sense. That means like for our, for us, is it? Are they, are they good for us, or are they bad for us? 
right? Is this good news or bad news? Is this good, you know, is their presence good tidings or evil tidings? Um, he's not, I think, making any aspersions on the moral character of the birds themselves. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly, Gildalowin. I see, you can see why I love that verse, right? Naughty figs that cannot be eaten, they are so evil. Yes, exactly. Just the verse I was, I was thinking of. Um, and that, that, that verse from Jeremiah comes to my mind because, um, uh, again, it's, I always laugh when I come to that verse because both the word evil and the word naughty are being used in this, like, very alien to the, mo to the modern usage way that just makes me smile. Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, now, Fourth Dallas, you are certainly correct that if they are evil for the company, they are on the side of evil. But see, um, that's exactly the way in which I'm not... Uh, that's exactly the thing that I would be conscious about, basically. Um, I think that Tolkien uses the word frequently and often uses it in that older sense of, you know, bad, disadvantageous, unfortunate. Um, uh, use it more like ill, uh, as you guys were pointing out. Um, we might still say, though, with usually with conscious archaism, something like ill fortune, right? Um, but I think that... Um, a lot of modern readers think that Tolkien is being more absolutist than he is. Um, he doesn't often talk about um, things being on the side of evil. Exactly. Or things being called evil. Being called wicked. Because they're, um, you know, on the side of the bad guys necessarily. Um, yeah. Um, yes, Rin, I, that's exactly what my little footnote and sidebar here is about, that people do not often catch the difference between evil, capital E, evil meaning wicked, or wickedness, and lowercase e, evil, which often just means bad. Like, it's uh, something you don't want. Um, so I, I do think you could paraphrase Gandalf here to say whether they are something we want or something we don't want or whether they have nothing to do with us at all. We must go down at once. Um, so he's certainly not saying whether they are good or evil or neutral in the Dungeons and Dragons alignment sense, um, nor do I think he's even using good and evil uh, in that sense. Um here is this I think is definitely one of the usages of evil where he is where he's using uh, or at least uh, sort of invoking that older sense um, and again for thoughts I agree with you they are in a sense aligned with evil but again um, Tolkien seems to me very frequently resistant to just lumping things remember Gandalf uh, you know as for me I pity only I pity even his slaves right um, and that's an attitude I believe that we are encouraged to have about um, bad guys, you know, about things that are uh, creatures that are on the side of evil. Um, very 
frequently. Um, okay. Um, so whether they are good or evil or have nothing to do with us, what Gandalf is explicitly talking about is what are going to be the consequences for us if we are seen by the birds? And what he's doing is dismissing all of those um, uh, all of those consequences. There might be evil consequences to us of being seen. Like it might, it might be to our harm that we're spotted by those birds. They might have nothing to do with us at all. Um, And it might be irrelevant if they spot us. Maybe it will do us good. Like he even holds out the theoretical possibility. Maybe the, maybe, you know, like maybe Galadriel sent the birds. Maybe seems unlikely, but can't totally rule it out. Right. Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, Everett says evil appears 271 times in the Lord of the Rings. So a full analysis would take a while. Yes, it would. Yes, it would. Jackie, it's possible Radagast sent them, right? You can't absolutely rule it out. And so Gandalf isn't absolutely ruling it out, but notice he was also not prepared to take any chances before on their way to the mountain, right? Um, and now, um, now he is equally dismissive. So on the one hand, he does seem to, he wants to hold out the possibility, right? That it will do harm for the birds to spot them and report on them. It's only one out of the three possibilities, right? And again, not how he was talking about the birds about being spotted before. Um, I wonder if even... There's another possibility, I think. Um, Right. I agree with you, Bjarne Sonner. It might be bad, but it's not Karathras bad. Yes, but I also wonder, is he using Gandalf? Is, he Gan- is Gandalf using Karathras a little bit here? Um, he believes, I think, Gandalf believes the enemy is now going to know where they are. Like, they've been spotted. The jig is up, right? It doesn't matter if the birds see them now. Um, I don't think he is... We know already from the conversations that he had with Aragorn. We know what plan B is. There were only two possibilities before. Both Aragorn and Gandalf dismissed the Gap of Rohan. So there were only two options. Karathras or Moria, though it had been unnamed in the previous conversation. Aragorn begged Gandalf not to even speak of that to anybody. And Gandalf hasn't. Um, But it is now clear it is time for plan B. There is no other option. Moria is what they have to do. That would have been true under any circumstances. It seems rather urgently true now. Now, I mean, now that not just that the path of Karathras has been shut to them, but that Gandalf has exposed himself. Now that he believes birds are no birds, they will have been detected, and the enemy is going to know of them, or will soon hear 
of their presence here. Gandalf seems to me to be very urgent to get moving. Um, and so I'm wondering if Gandalf is here using a little bit of indirection. Um, the big scary mountain that just almost killed them is the danger they know, right? And so he's saying in a way which is doubtless going to resonate with his audience, not even on the knees of Karathras. Let's, let's get way down off this mountain. What he's not saying to them is, let's get to the entrance to Moria as soon as possible. Let it, we've got to disappear. We've got to go underground where we cannot be seen and cannot be followed. Um, and perhaps Gandalf is thinking that their one hope of escaping, not just detection, but escape, escaping... Um, uh, uh, discovery. Like, it's one thing for Gandalf, for the enemy to know, or to discover, or at least to suspect that Gandalf is here, right? As, uh, as Gandalf says, right? Um, that he's present in the mountains. Um, it's a different thing for them to be actually caught, right? Um, and, uh, I think it's very likely that Gandalf is thinking our best chance of not being caught here, having been detected, is to get underground. Um, but he doesn't want to see... He do, he's not yet at a place where he's going to say, run towards Moria um, because they're after us. In fact, not only is he not saying the enemy's pursuit will have begun several hours ago and they're closing in on us even now. Right. Not only is he not saying that, though I have to think he's suspecting that. Um, again, his his very attitude towards the birds seems to me to imply that. But even in his characterization of the birds, he's still leaving open the possibility that no evil is going to come, whether they are good or evil or have nothing to do with us at all. We must go down. The only evil he draws attention to is the mountain behind them. Let's get away from the mountain. And I think we can all agree to that, right? Jackie, that's exactly what I think. Um, and Murina, he is trying to keep the morale as high as possible. They've just been defeated, right? They have just, um, they have to know there are going to be some bad consequences to what just happened. Um, at the very least, that was their plan A for how to get over the mountains, um, which is like the first major step in getting towards Mordor, right, from Rivendell. Um, and they've just failed that. But I think that we do see Gandalf believes it could be worse, right? Um, better even to remind them of the defeat that they, that they just experienced and encourage them at the, uh, at the thought of putting more distance between them and it than imagine that a more immediate and difficult to escape. Not that it was easy to escape Karathras, but Karathras is easy to escape in the sense that he won't chase you, right? <laughs> like it's, it's one thing you got to say for mountains, right? Once, uh, once you do manage to get off the mountain, probably you're safe from it after that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I could theoretically throw rocks at you, Aranas, but um, I don't know how far I can throw rocks. Anyway, um, so yeah, I, I think we can see Gandalf still managing, um, uh, still managing to, uh, uh, s- still managing their morale and their responses, their their state of mind. Um, a cold wind flowed down. <laughs> Throwing rocks is funny always. I see what you did there, Forthalus. It is funny always. A cold wind flowed down behind them as they turned their backs on the Redhorn Gate and stumbled wearily down the slope. Uh, notice that the the journey described in this chapter ends as the journey in this chapter began with that cold east wind. Once again, the breath of the east wind um, is cutting into them. But this time, there's a kind of extra level of mockery in it, right? It's like the mountain breathing down on them, blowing them away from the mountain. Um, The east wind, they were going south. uh, And so the east wind was coming in from their left side, right, as they were going down. Now, the east wind, the cruel east wind, is blowing at them again. But this time it's at their backs. They barely notice it. The cold wind flowed down around them as they turned their backs on the Redhorn Gate and stumbled wearily down the slope. They're very weary, but gravity is with them and the wind is at their backs. Should be a nice walk, actually, comparatively speaking, compared to trudging up the mountain, right, uh, against the wind. You've got a tailwind. You're going downhill. What could be better? Except, of course, they are running away in defeat. If their feet are being hastened away, their feet are being hastened away both by the slope of the mountain that's kicking them off and by the cold wind uh, that was so ominous uh, from from the very beginning. Um, Karathras had defeated them. Um, anyway, I love the repetition, the return to the cold wind, uh, the cold wind from the east. Um, and of course, the cold wind from the east was always to some extent and on some level associated with Sauron, with Mordor, right? I mean, eastward was where they were going. The east is where Mordor is. East is always associated with Mordor in these lands. And the cold wind from the east at the beginning of their journey was like a grim reminder, right? It wasn't exactly in opposition to them because they weren't walking east. They were walking south. But as they were walking south, like Frodo could never forget the east, right? It was like the breath of, you know, the evil breath of Sauron himself, you know, like the, the evil will of Sauron pushing against them from the east, cutting through their clothing, chilling them, and, um, and you know, at the very least, making them miserable. Now, in as much as, you know, if we still think about the east wind as associated with the will with Sauron, it's the one wind you don't want to be at your back, right? You don't want uh, to feel that you are it's it it reminds me more old man willow parallels it reminds me of that moment in the old forest 
when they stop even trying to find a path that doesn't go down to the river. Remember, you know, that Mary is trying to lead them straight through and they keep getting diverted uh, down closer and closer to the river. And then eventually they just they just go along with it. Right. And there's that sentence you'll remember where we're told that they they, you know, they become aware that they've you know, they'd long ceased to even, you know, try to resist. They knew that they were being you know, that they were being guided, that they were just following a prearranged path. There's that same, um, there's that same kind of sense, I think, here. Um, that uh, they are on, they are now stumbling wearily down the path that has been chosen for them. And it's been chosen for them by their enemies, by Karathras at the very least. Possibly, Sauron himself, or at least sort of symbolically and by extension, Sauron himself, right? Um, this leg of the journey that they are currently on, going back downhill, is the one time in their whole trip so far in which they are going exactly away from the, um, the destination, right? Away from the achievement of the quest. Um, it is a defeat. Karathras had defeated them. Um, and that is one of the best end of uh, chapter sentences in The Lord of the Rings. Um, I think that's... Um, uh, I, just, I, I love Tolkien's... When Tolkien builds up to a short sentence like that. Of course, the really famous ones are like, and Morgoth came, or, and it stank. Um, but there are others, and this is another one of those, right? That simple four-word sentence, Karathras had defeated them, is really, really good. Um, and thus ends the first leg of their journey with a defeat attempting to do a difficult thing cross over the Redhorn Pass in January um, they were attempting to do a difficult thing um, but of course their whole quest is difficult if not impossible and yet of all the difficult things that they are setting out to do surely this should be the least difficult um, we're going to have to be thinking about morale as we move forward, right? Because um, the entire premise of this quest from the start was we don't have Omdir that it's going to work out. And here it is already not working out. They've already been defeated. They've already... Um, yeah. Ah, Green Great Dragon, I agree. Um... But the dead followed them is another really, really good end of chapter sentence. Yep. It's another one of my favorites. Um, Karathras had defeated them. Um, yep. Yep. And Wobe, I think that's a really good point. Um, by Aragorn's reckoning, Wobe says this should be less difficult. Um, but by Gandalf's, perhaps it's not difficult enough. Yes. I think it's hard not to reflect back on the exchange which Gandalf 
is valiantly not rubbing Aragorn's face into at this point. Aragorn was wrong. It's clear that Aragorn was wrong. And I think clear that he didn't just turn out to be wrong, right? Like, you know, well, we don't know one way or the other. I mean, he was considering it. Aragorn was considering it a question of which is the highest risk. And he was so terrified of Moria that he didn't even want it mentioned to anybody else. Um, Say nothing to the others, I beg. Remember that? Um, uh, he said that he saw no hope in their journey from one end to the next, but it was also clear um, that he saw more hope, more Amdir. More, uh, he had more Amdir hope in the chance of their success of crossing the mountains than he did of their getting safely through Moria. Um, and yet it didn't work out. Um, and it does seem, well, I, I mean, I do think that you're right. It's not to say that the path to success is to choose the hardest possible path and that will guarantee victory. No, it's not going to work like that either. Um, uh, it's not going to work like that either. Um, I think that merely choosing, like, uh, choose whatever way seems impossible. If one thing seems like a bad idea and another thing seems like a worse idea, always go with the worse idea. Like, I don't think that's the principle here either. Um, but, um, yes, Gildalum and I agree. It does seem that Gandalf saw Moria as the inevitable path, even the way in which he brought it up. when In that conversation that Frodo overhears, um, Gandalf is saying to Aragorn, what about that, that other path, right? That other, the dark and secret way that I've mentioned to you, right? He, he brought it up. Um, he had brought it up before and he was coming back to it again, right? Gandalf, it's, this is definitely on Gandalf's mind, right? Um, and it seems that Gandalf has some kind of foreboding, premonition, some sort of sense that that's the way they're going to need to go. I don't think he knows why. And again, I don't, it's, I don't think it's just as simple as, well, that looks like it's going to be really horrible. So let's go that way. You know, like it's, it's, that is a, an oversimplification, both of Gandalf's and of Elrond's perspectives on these things. Um, but, um, but it's going to be, it is clear that Gandalf's, um, uh, Gandalf's intuition was correct. Moria is going to be the way they were going to go. Um, likely a bot, I doubt that Gandalf knew that Frodo could hear them. I think we talked about this a little bit at the time. I don't think so. I think that Frodo was genuinely overhearing them. There, as far as we can see, I, I don't see any indication in that passage that Gandalf was like speaking for Frodo's ears there. Um, yeah, yeah. So, Ambrosius Aurelianus, I agree. I don't disagree with you. Um, Ambrosius says Aragorn's choice was for legitimate reasons. It's just that even reasonable decisions don't always turn out well. That's just life. Yes, it is. But there are patterns here. 
um, we are leading up to, as um, one of you was just talking about Parth Galen, and I, I'm thinking of it as well. Um, when he gets to Parth Galen, Aragorn is going to be confronted with another decision, um, which looks like a decision between bad and worse. And the decision he's going to make there is not... He's not going to make that decision on the same basis that he made this decision. Um, he... Now, the decisions aren't exactly the same. Um, but to do the thing that... I wonder... This might be an overstatement, so... Uh, be prepared to take it with a grain of salt. I've said that Gandalf and Aragorn, or sorry, Gandalf and Elrond both seem to really understand, they, they seem to be premising the decisions that they have made leading into and are making at the end of the Council of Elrond, basing it on Estelle and actively arguing against Amdir. They're basically saying, ignore Amdir. If we try to, it, it seems logical to weight the scales in our own favor in every way that we possibly can. But we should not do that because that our hope does not lie in strength. Our hope lies in, well, our hope lies in, in, in Estelle, that what should be shall be, and that the success of this of this quest is something that has been decreed to be and will be. Um, and we're going to do our part to make it happen, but we're not going to like, we're not going to, we don't want there to be any illusion about the fact that this is up to us or that we are ultimately responsible for this. Um, so we're not going to, we're going to choose the weak instead of the strong. Does this seem impossible? Okay. Um, then tell you what, since uh, we're sending the ring bearer off on a quest uh, that which any which even the strongest among us would have a very, very small chance of, of succeeding at, let's maximize the situation by sending the weakest person we can find. Right. Um, anyway, so here's here's the statement. I haven't yet made it. Here's the statement that uh, I'm instructing you to take with a grain of salt. I wonder if Aragorn was not fully on board with that plan, or if he didn't understand it yet. I am suspecting that what we are going to see, not at the end of the Fellowship of the Ring, but at the beginning of the Two Towers, at the at, at the beginning of Book Three, um, I think that what we're going to see from Aragorn is Aragorn finally embracing the plan that. Uh, the plan, the rationale, the perspective, the understanding that Gandalf and Elrond are starting from here. Um, and again, it's not let's do everything as badly as possible. Let's, you know, uh, let's make every choice that seems worst. Again, it's not like that. Um, but Aragorn was still thinking sort of conventionally. He was still thinking, well... They're both going to be bad, so let's just do the less bad one, right? I mean, if given a choice between two bad options, we choose the less bad one, right? Stands to reason. Um, 
he's not going to be thinking that way anymore uh, in the beginning of book three. Um, nor is he going to be, and I think we, we, I think that we can see a beginning of a shift in Aragorn's own sort of understanding and priorities there. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I wonder, Aranas, that's an interesting way to think about it. Perhaps Aragorn initially thinks that you can use both Estel and Umdir, but then realizes that they can work against each other. Yes, yes. Um, yes. Um, yeah, I think I, I, I think this is a process, Silk Westcott. Uh, I do think this is a process. Um, yeah, and, but this is something we may want to be keeping our eyes on. Um, how Aragorn's own perspective changes and develops. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Nancy, that's a really wonderful question. Do we suppose that going through Moria helps Aragorn get over his fear such that he's enabled to, to go through the paths of the dead later? Um, certainly, well, I don't think we're quite equipped to answer that question right now, Nancy, but I do think you are right to point to the parallel between the two. There are two horrible, in fact, dreadful, quite literally dreadful, underground passages, underground shortcuts, right, which Aragorn is confronted with. The first time, he is so full of dread that he wishes it not even to be spoken of, right? Let's not even go there unless it's clear there is no other possible alternative. Um, when the choice to enter the paths of the dead uh, confronts him. Now, there are other factors there as well. They're not exactly the same, but that certainly is also a very dreadful underground shortcut passage, right? Um, but, um, yeah, anyway, we'll see. Yeah, several of you are jumping ahead to several other stuff, and there will be other factors at play there. Um, do we suppose the night on Karathras might also have been fateful? Yeah, I do. I do. I, I think that, in my opinion, one of the things that has been accomplished here, I think this is part of Aragorn's learning experience. Um, he is going to emphasize um, his own track record in choosing the right way, in leading people correctly. Um, it's interesting because Aragorn... Uh, you know, it, thinking of conversations that Maggie and I were having lately in Other Minds and Hands about book Aragorn and movie Aragorn. And of course, in, in the films, uh, Aragorn's self-doubt and uncertainty is, is played up enormously, right? Um, uh, such that he's sort of running from his past or running from his destiny or whatever um, in ways which seem utterly alien to book Aragorn. However... Book Aragorn is not as monolithic, I think, as many people think. Um, it is not true that Book Aragorn is just on a heroic pedestal from the very beginning and, um, you know, is the 
the great leader who is always the great leader and always knows what's best. He is, in a sense, on a pedestal from the beginning. The hobbits are looking up at him with awe and fear from the very beginning of meeting him. Um, and we don't really sort of look him in the eye as we see everybody from the Hobbit's perspective. So we're looking up at Aragorn all the way through the book. But that just means that you have to pay attention to notice that there is real, there's a real character arc in Aragorn. It's not his story. This isn't Aragorn's story. He's not the protagonist of The Lord of the Rings. Um, there are several ways it's stretching the point to say, I was about to say there are several ways in which Aragorn is, is a minor character in this story. That's overstating it and starting to sound silly. Obviously, he's a very important character, but, but do you see what I mean? Like, it's not his story. And what is going on with him and what the story means to him, it emerges at times. We get glimpses of it from a distance, usually. But not that often do we actually see what is going on in Aragorn's own mind and what he's learning and the mistakes that he's making. Um, but I think if we pay attention to those, we can see that the story of Book Aragorn is much more full of doubt and um, that he progresses much further from where he is and what he is. Um, this, of course, gets emphasized by the hobbits. Right. Um, the final emphasis, little spoiler here. Um, uh, so like uh, when we get to this passage in 45 years, pretend that uh, that we didn't talk about this already. Um, but when we get back to the Prancing Pony, um, we are going to be confronted with the progress of Aragorn's, you know, the shift in Aragorn's character. Right. When we get the uh, in the eyes of Barlam and Butterbur, the juxtaposition of Strider. You know what, Strider with a, you know, with a with a with a with a with a what was it with a ring and a golden cup and all right? Like the the golden cup is the thing that he's thinking about. Um, he can't imagine those two things, right? Like the 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 King Alessar is so far removed from the Strider of Bree, um, you know, that it becomes sort of it it becomes a comical moment there um, in the Inn at Bree on the way back. Um, but, um, but there's more to it than that, right? There's more than just that particular journey that he's taking. It's not, it's not only outwardly, um, it's not his status in society only that's changed. Aragorn has changed. He's grown. He's developed. There's been movement, um, uh, in his, uh, um, uh, in his character. Um, and again, I think we can see it. Remember that scene of him sitting there on the steps waiting for Gandalf to come out of Rivendell? And that very indirect comment that we got that only Gandalf um, knew what this moment meant to him, right? Anyway, he's still learning. And, he's, and I think that we can see him change over the course of the story. And I do think that that's one of the things that is happening. Here. Oh, only Elrond knew. Thank you, Jackie. Only Elrond knew um, fully what this moment meant to him. Yeah, yeah, thanks. Um, anyway, so I do think that that's one of the, the important things that happens here in Karathras. But I want us, as we go into the next passages here in the beginning of chapter three, pretty exciting, beginning of chapter three, as we move into the beginning of chapter three, um, 
four. Beginning of chapter four. See, I, I can't even count this slowly. Um, as we move into the beginning of chapter four, I want us to be thinking about what are some of the, like, what is going on? There is so much in this section. Um, as I've said before, there is so much in this section that where, like, what is happening is described, but what it means, what, like, what's going on in the big picture is not explained because the hobbits don't understand it. Right. And so we're standing here like the hobbits looking around, just kind of wondering what's going on. And nobody's telling us Uh, Aragorn and Gandalf are playing it pretty close to the vest. And um, and the hobbits don't understand what's happening. Um, What was that wisp of not cloud who sent the birds and what is going on with them? How is Gandalf going to be revealed? And what is does that revelation bring about? Um, there are many, th- many things that are going to happen, the significance of which is not explained. Right. And I'm not and there will be many of these things that we just don't really know. Right. We don't really we're, we're never going to know for sure. We're going to have to speculate. Um but I think there's a lot of speculation invited about a lot of those things. And again, the overall effect of the way that Tolkien is telling the story in those moments um, is for um, uh, not mystery mystery in the sense of uh, um, trying to build suspense or something exactly, but that we find ourselves in the same state of uh, confusion and uncertainty and wonder and even fear uh, that the hobbits themselves are in. And I think it's a very effective storytelling technique that Tolkien uses here to tell us as little as possible, um, not just about what is happening, but about what it means, right? Um, we're clueless wandering through this part of the story with the clueless hobbits. What things can we figure out um, as we come back to this from a different perspective, right, than the hobbits had at that point? Anyway, um, awesome. Thanks, everybody. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for that. Um, It's field trip time. Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. Evil Dr. Cannon is sharing the the chart. Yeah, it's... um, uh, there we go. It's it's not actually going to asymptote though. It's really it's really not. Yeah, projecting starting the Grey Havens in uh, uh, in twenty seventy eight. No problems. <laughs> no problems. <laughs> It'll be fine. It'll be fine. Fourth Dallas thinks we need a log scale. Yeah. Um. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> anyway, well, it'll all be good. It'll all be good. Um, field trip time. So, um, I, someone was just asking if we're gonna get to Carothros on our. Rowan was just asking if we can get to Carothros on our field trip. Um, uh, not today. So, what I'm waiting for, if I just for a second, um, Go to the area door map um, and go back to where, where did it go? 
Eregian. Yeah. Um, so we explored most of Eregian. What I avoided was the Redhorn Pass and this whole region over here. Um, and I want to go back and do that. We haven't finished the part of the story that relates to it. We will go up the Pass of Karathras, um, but also the encounter with the wolves, that's also here too. Um, so after we finish the wolves, um, I think actually and get into Moria itself, once the doors close behind the company, um, then we'll explore that whole area. The pass up to Karathras, uh, the Wolf Hill, and then also um, the uh, the water, uh, the Saranon and the water and the, and the gates to Moria. Um, so that's my, I'm, I'm planning to do that whole sort of leg of field tripping um, after we finish that, um, this next stretch of prose. Uh, so there we go. There we go. Um, so sometime next year? Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Um, okay. I'm gonna fix my screen here, which will take just a second. Unfortunately, Valoria couldn't be with us tonight. Uh, poor Valoria is suffering from uh, the seasonal allergies and has totally lost her voice today. Uh, so she wasn't able to join us. Okay. Okay. Here we come. All right, Druid's Fire, are you going to form the raid? Working on it. Okay, thank you. Yeah, so we're going to head to Skurlock. That's it. We're going to we're going to we're meeting at the farm there until further notice. Oh, Dizzy, you're in Hawaii at the moment? That is awesome. Which island are you on, Dizzy? I love Hawaii. All right. All right, there we go. Back to Skurlock Farm. Oahu. Considering okay. what uh, Standing Stone has unleashed upon the game this week. Uh, no, I know nothing about that. Uh, they have a new supporter copper you can buy for Lotro points, and if you get one, it gives you the title of farmer and a whole pile of housing decorations. Oh, cool. Very cool. What I want is more and more carryalls. But anyway, friend of pack rats everywhere. All right, so here we are at Skurlock Farm that we looked at last time, and I want to go. I want to. I want to do some ruin exploration now. Um, so I think I, I want to go um, uh, clockwise. Um, so let's head to those. No. I think I want to go over here. 
Is it over? Yes, it's over here. I want to go to. I go in this direction first. So we were looking at how that um, farm is now nestled in this little valley where no one was building strongholds because you don't build strongholds in valleys in the middle of hills. You build them on top of hills. And so this clearly an old ruin. This seems very certainly early Arnorian, I would think. All of the normal markers. Um, what do we think this building was? The walls... The walls aren't that thick. It doesn't look like a like a, a sort of a curtain wall thing. We've got these random pillars. With this row row of pillars and then wall over there. Hmm. Maybe like a summer house with a big honking porch and portico? Yeah, it could be. It could be. I mean, if this is old Arnor now, this would be out. So, you know, according to our theories, the big city over there, which Karnast, um, would have been built in old Arnorian times. But this would be out on the frontiers, right? So this would be another one of those, like, you know, summer home hunting lodge things. It's not like the hunting lodges that we have found down in the, down by the road. But, um, but I could easily see it doesn't this does not look like a grand building at all. It's quite small. Yeah. Really. Comparatively, yeah. Comparatively. Yeah, I mean it's not it's not a hut exactly, but it's uh it's certainly not a town or city. Uh nor does it look like a fortress or something like that. Um so let's say that somebody came out on this little hill and was like, ah, stark and lovely. And it was probably well before that farm was on fire, so this looks like a nice place. Let's uh Let's let's build a summer home here. Um, but then uh, we've got another one up here, which more tower like. Yeah, it does look more tower like. It looks like it could very likely be from the same period. It is seems to be in a similar state of disrepair. The foundations are better. In the sense of being better preserved. Um, preserved wood at the top that may have to have been newer. It's possible. Let's see. Gosh, this is very intact. The foundation, I mean. Mm -hmm. Any indication what this was? I mean, it has to be a tower. Maybe a watchtower of some kind? Could scarcely have been anything else but a tower. Um, I see no way into it. From any side. That does seem to be a problem with a lot of this ancient architecture. It's, it's like a solid thing with no thoughts of doors or entrances. Yeah, sometimes one thinks that might be lost. No, wait, now tell me. The tower I'm looking at due north. There's a, a ruin due north of here. Is that here or is that in the Lone Lands? Because I think that's Weathertop that we're seeing. 
to the north of here. Weathertop would be to the northeast. Would it? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, that's not. Weathertop is more over that way. Yeah, you're right. Probably wouldn't be able to see it from here because of that hill over there. Okay. So, I think that this tower... Okay, look at a couple... Let's look at a couple details here. First off, look at this little layer down here. Look at the markings on this, like the little X's and things, like by the light blue here. Yes, I did see that. Okay, and we're seeing... Okay, and there's the... Um, Oyelare, Oyelare, right? The bow of return that we've seen on lots of other old Arnorian things over there, right? Okay, so those X's that was just poorly, that, that's these little uh, artichoke uh, things. I think that's the same thing that's along this row here. Now, if we go back briefly to the, to the other ruin down the hill where we just started from, am this I going the right direction? Here too. This is the direction of that other ruin, right? I wasn't seeing it. I just went off in the direction that felt right. Ah, yeah, this is it. Okay. Um, past the farm that's scenically burning in the distance. Uh, very slow burning farms around here. I didn't see any fancy work like that. There's the blue row, and there's the Oyelare there above it. And I see the stars of Arnor. But I'm not seeing that artichoke row on either side. That that's not proof, of course. But I'm I that plus the um, comparative good repair. Now the tower's fallen over. The tower up here that we were looking at has fallen over, uh, which is, and you still see the timbers sticking out as you say the timbers are still there, and that seems fairly remarkable. Um, but um, uh, but this does seem to be in better repair and fancier. So I'm wondering if this tower was built. So if we have down there, summer home, little, you know, getaway, cottage, whatever it was. And then up here, we have clearly a much larger structure. And this up further up on the hill seems almost certainly to be Cardolan, uh, not only because we can see the tower on the doorways right there, but just the newness of it and the fanciness of it and the almost complete survival of the building, at least on this facade. There are some fallen bits, but still, it's in pretty good shape. Right. And one thing I thought, thought was interesting between the two structures we looked at already is the tower did have... Um, the the Numenorean star, but it was pointed down. Yes. The peak was. Yes. And then the other square ruin with the weird um, uh, arcade there uh, had them on an applique, but the star was pointing up. Yeah. Yeah. And then here we have some of the first examples I can remember of the star pointing sideways. It's actually that same thing that was on the bottom of the, the tower. Yeah. But pointed down. Right. I see. It's just oriented a different way. It's like they had the same trim, but now they're doing it vertically instead of horizontally. 
Okay. Uh, see, and I thought, I thought from a distance, I thought that that tower was on a set of doors, like in the big archway. But of course, those aren't doors. It's just featuring the Tower of Cardolan. Just a facade. It's like, yeah. hey, here, here we are. Exactly. Marvelous. Symmetrically on either side of the door and dwarfing the door. I mean, the door is tiny compared to them. So, yeah, I think that, um, I mean, not only is this obviously very Cardolan, um, but it is, um, yeah, it's not only very Cardolan, but it's uh, much, it looks like recent and fancier construction. I mean, like, again, there's that, the uh, sort of, I don't know if it was originally copper work above the archway that we saw in Karnost as well. Um, oh, man, look, and then you come in the door, look at this really impressive arcade hallway. So nice. And they this, even have some designs in the ceilings, too. Yeah, this place is so fancy. Yeah, intricate ceilings. It's but also... a great hall of some kind, or like an entrance... Like yeah, a, a very grand hall. entrance hall is what it looks like. And notice how out here we had the um, the big circular, uh, you know, sort of platform here at the beginning. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb and assume the tomb was not, they didn't start with that. They probably no. didn't lead with the tomb. No, I mean, the tomb is obviously more recent in construction. I mean, it, it doesn't have as much crud on it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, so I'm going to assume that this may even be the tomb of whoever the dude was who built this place. That sounds reasonable, yeah. And when he died, they put his tomb out here, or maybe one of his descendants. I mean, maybe this is the tomb of, like, the last, you know, you know, Lord of Cardolan who ever ruled here when the place was overrun, or, you know, who knows. And then they came back later and built his tomb here. I, I don't know. Um, but something like that. But anyway, this would have been... So let's imagine the tomb isn't here. We just have this big circular courtyard area, like reception place, with the really fancy Cardolan facades on either side. And then we go through the deceptively small door into Grand Entry Hall. Really kind of surprised this Grand Entry Hall doesn't have bigger doors. Yeah, no side, just, I mean, it's, it, you're f being funneled straight down, another tomb I'm going to ignore for a moment, into this, now the chamber widens out, right, the chamber widens out, and, did it just suddenly get dark? Why did it suddenly get dark? We got in far enough? Um, well, there's no lights in here, so. Okay, anyway, so you, uh, you go all the way down, um, Oh man, look at how from here, like the, the like the the echoing length of tunnel that we can see stretching away back towards the door, into this great hall, which is very dark now, but honestly was always very dark. There's no windows. No windows. I would imagine it gets very stuffy in the summer, and you'd think very, so. Very, yeah. Okay, so I'm changing my mind. I'm changing my mind. And I'm now wondering if this was always meant to be a mausoleum. That would make sense, because these over here uh, do kind of look like little, yeah. 
Uh-huh. I mean, that there are tombs all over, I was noticing. But again, I was wondering if there were a possibility those might be a little ex post facto. But, uh... Possibly, but they look like they're built into the walls. Yeah, yeah, I agree. That was before I saw these things down here, when I was just coming down the entryway, t- seeing the one tomb out in front of the door, and then the other tomb down here at the end of the hallway. Mm-hmm. But now, once we get in here, and I agree, yeah, this is now looking like a like an active mausoleum. We've got these two doors leading to other burial chambers, perhaps. I don't know. These aren't coffins. They're too big. Apart from being bizarrely asymmetrical in every direction, like there isn't any sort of symmetry with these things, and it's bothering me. Um, It would only work if you buried somebody with, like, a shield in their one hand, but it'd be, be in the wrong hand, unless it turned them upside down. No, I mean, also unless you're burying somebody nine feet tall or ten feet tall. I mean, look how much huger and longer these things are than, like, the regular tombs. Family burial? All in one big... <laughs> one big asymmetrical sarcophagus? Maybe. possible, I guess. A little weird. Especially... The way the stairs are. Especially when you have these big, huge, honking sarcophagi over here. In a different style, of course. Yeah. They still... They have this, um... uh, Freeze on them, though. Some kind of battle is going on. A freeze over here? Oh. Up on the top. Yeah, on, on the coffins on the walls. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's a bunch of people in ropes. Honestly, it reminds me of old uh, Greek and Roman Yeah, it does look art. like Greek. Um, does look a little bit Greek. Got a little tunics, naked mm-hmm. dudes, spears. A little hoplite warfare going on here. Yeah, looks a little Greek-ish. Um... Might be a woman on the far left-hand side. Not sure. Possibly the Greek pantheon? Oh, I don't know if I get that specific. What's in the middle? It looks like an animal being skewered on... That's just what it looks like to me, too. Um, uh, Yeah. Um, Huh. I don't know. Um, it's possible that these are just pedestals. It is weird to me. Look, they don't even point the same direction. Everything is asymmetrical about these. Drives me crazy. Yeah, JJ, you were just noticing the same thing. The entire lack of symmetry... The very deliberate and po- the only thing that would be worse, the only way these two things could be worse is if they didn't line up either. Like they at least line up. If one were offset by about a foot and a half, then that would be that would be perfect weirdness. This seems a little bit strange. You've got one that's like facing inward toward the back wall here, 
and one that's facing outwards at the door. Yeah, I don't... Depending on what even you define as face. Well, and they are the same color, Nancy, I agree. That's something, too. Weird. This diamond pattern on the sides of these uh, asymmetrical... It does not feel like something we would see. Uh, it's it, unusual. It's morbid to me. Yeah, it's a little bit, yeah, because of the sort of geometry of mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Um, sitting on a pedestal with, like, tree placards and... and yeah, stars. stylistically, it feels a little bit like the artichokes, but, of course, it's quite different. Now, notice we get the, we get the same tree and star shapes that you get on the Greenway mm -hmm. stones. Yeah, the same uh, paving stones. Yeah. Um... Don't you also get the impression that they use different forms of burial? Um, like, uh, well, yeah. I don't know what you file in these. Urns, perhaps? Right? Uh, if they're built into the wall or just going abutting to the wall. Right. Perhaps. Um, Unless they had, like, uh, vertically standing sarcophagi? Yeah. I don't know. Uh, Rowan is suggesting, you know, is, is there a possibility that the sarcophagus here is from a, a, an entirely different culture. Um, possibly. Um, I mean, the, differ the difference in the coloration of the stone would be consistent with them being added much later by somebody totally different. Yeah, this looks more like jade or a malachite yeah. versus, you know, the stuff on the the walls are clearly like aged metal of some kind. Right. Looks the, yeah, it looks like copper with vertigrees. Yeah, I agree. Um, yeah. So the color is similar. The green is similar, but but I agree. It's a, a, of a totally different kind. Yeah. No, it's weird. I agree, Rowan. It doesn't really seem to fit. But who else could it be? Somebody very tall. Who doesn't like symmetry but does like geometric shapes? Uh, do we know anybody like that? Huh? Elendil was even Elendil isn't that tall. No, even Elendil wasn't that tall. No, no. no you met him, or you will. Yeah, it would have to be. It would have to be. Because I mean, this is would be crazy. It's like twelve feet long. This thing. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, Let's head to the basement questions. fast. Where do we get? How do we get to the basement? Uh, there's stairs to the north side. It's actually two lo two basements. Oh, yeah. Ah, okay. If you look totally at the missed sides, it. There's also a couple of like dark gray slabs. Whoa. There's lots of basement. Yes, there's a second level with the basement as well. Yeah, also the fact that it starts on the ground level and goes down is pretty darn suggestive of uh, tomb from the start. Goblin just wandering around with a bomb. There's also bomb. a cave going out to the outside. Okay, and we've got regular Arnorian tombs. Regular cartilagin tombs, and then more asymmetrical. Yeah. 
two more of these puppies. Um. Okay. All right. The idea that somebody else broke in here and made those other sarcophagi, though, is so weird. Because, like, for them just to be like, I shall only put them in a few tasteful locations, you know, on pedestals in the midst of... Like, that's just weird. Okay, four more of these... And more of the little upright reach-in tombs. Mm-hmm. We've got the reach-in tombs and the walk-in tombs. This thing... But now we can see that the reach-in tombs are actually like an actual self-contained item. Right. Because you can actually walk around them on the side. Right. Um, ooh. Look at the carvings on this. What is that? A tree? A flower? Okay, so on the side you've got stars. You've got a seven pointed stars with seven seven pointed stars around the edge, which is a lot. And then what looks like spikes? And the bottom part? And then tree uh like um that's yeah I don't that's very it's strange it's a weird angle on the new, the anuminous uh city spikes uh, I don't th you mean like the four sticky up bits at the top of the towers yeah the sticky up bits yeah yeah I I don't th yeah I like to use technical vocabulary when I can um <laughs> Uh, no, I don't think so. I think it, first of all, I think there's more than four. Second of all, they're they're sharper, and third, they're not oriented. They're not in pairs, you know, the way that the others are. Yeah. Okay. Um, maybe spears or banners of some kind. I don't know. And then the others, the uh, the other picture looks like a tree, um, but it does not look like a Gondorian tree. It looks like a it looks like an acacia tree or something like that. Um, and then even the carving along the side. That's like you know fruit and. and, and I think it's fruit. Come see the bounty of our land. We grow all these cool things. And I think that's a dude. Isn't that a dude on top? a scepter-like thing that kind of looks like an Eminus. Oh, you know, the whole thing is a dude. I see the images I was looking at are just the hangings down from his arms. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, um, like long Komodo sleeves with painted. Yeah. Hey, he's got some more of those spiky things sticking out behind him. Is he looking up to the sky, or is it a case where he's just lying back and his head just is? I think he's dead. Yeah, I think he's. I think that's that's like the 
the same kind of in repose posture mm-hmm. that you put as you know as an effigy on on top of a tomb, except it's vertical. So is it his mantle behind his head, um, or is it a case where he's like laying on feathers? Well, feathers. I was just thinking about feathers, though. I was thinking that's weird, but it could be feathers. Would there be some relation between the weird spiky things behind him and the weird spiky things reaching up towards those stars? Possibly. Also, his um, his folding hands on top of the scepter look very funeral effigy. He does, yeah. Like, you know, holding his sword, but he's not got a Right, he's not, he's not holding it, you know, like he might in a statue. It's just his, his hands are folded on top of it. Like a funeral effigy. And I think that's a, a crown helmet that he's wearing. That's almost like the floor to list on it. Kind of does. Kind of does. But I think it's a, I think it's a crown helmet. Definitely not Numenorian, because he's got a beard. Well, uh, I'm not going to judge. <laughs> I'm not going to judge the bearded kings of Lotro statues, because in their defense, they had started making bearded king statues long before the nature of Middle-earth came out. I wish there was something to stand on a little bit closer. Yeah, look at the, if you look at the king off a little bit more to the side, you can see how his chin is tipped back more. Again, his head is mm-hmm. resting, again, like funeral effigy. Right, it's a like funeral effigy, but without a pillow. Yeah, without a pillow and propped vertically instead of lying horizontally. Huh. Because, because one thing that we don't have in Middle Earth overall is while they're, there are the Valar, but you don't look up to reverent, you know, to worship the Valar. You look to the West. Yes. So Agreed. there's no reason for him to just be standing up there looking at the sky like, oh, you know, God's right. up there or Zeus is up there or whoever. So that's why repose seems more appropriate than like some sort of, you know, reverence sort of thing. Yeah. I'm trying to see if we can make out the images on these four panels. And if they were the same Numenorean panels as the ones we saw in Ered Lewin, not Ered Lewin, even them way back in the day. But I can't tell. They look, it looks like the top and the bottom ones are the same, but symmetrical. They're mirror reversed. They're not the same as each other. The left and the right are the same as each other, but they're mirror reversed from each other. Yeah, they basically flip-flopped them. Yeah. So, yeah, they're definitely mirror-reversed. Are these... I feel like the top one I recognize from the Numenorean story. Right. In, mm-hmm. Many, many moons ago. Right, in that, um, that whole, you know... 
uh, comic strip there in Enuminous. So I think it might be part of the Numenor story, but not all of it. But it's hard to make it out. Maybe it's the only part they wanted to keep. Maybe. That would tell us something. One thing I find interesting is how stylized at least the bottom half of the, the dude in Reposa's compared to like the top half it's pretty fancy the sides are pretty fancy and then you just got this star with just a very very basic sides and you know application around it oh you mean in the the statue the mm -hmm. the king statues, the statues yeah it's like half of it they they went all ham and made everything like super detailed super fancy very busy and then the bottom half was like oh we're just gonna put a star and that's about it Huh. Um, hang on a second here. Uh, JJ sent a picture of the four panels and no, I think I'm wrong. They're not the same. They're not the same. They're not the same. The the bottom one on this tomb and the uh, second from the top on the uh, other one is the one that looked... That's the one it was reminding me of, but it's not the same. Okay. Interesting. Well... Maybe huh. it's an epilogue to the comic strip. Maybe it's an epilogue. A Numenorean epilogue. Possibly. It's the mid credit scene. Yeah. Well... Okay. Um, funky. Well, it's now getting late. I didn't know there was going to be a whole multi-story under... Oh, man, there's more. There's a tunnel. Okay. Well, see, the tunnels clearly were... Somebody tunneled their way in or broke in because there's, like, you know, the wall has fallen. Maybe somebody tunneled their way in here in order to deposit asymmetrical sarcophagi that were there far too go. large. Oh, it's just a it's just of... an egress. Yeah. This way to the egress. But the question is, is this a natural egress or was this tunneled out in some fashion? Because well, it's so rough. I mean, there's it... a wall. There was a wall. Right, it's clearly not contemporaneous with uh, the original construction because it's so crude. Right. And if somebody tunneled their way in, Where's the rock? Where'd it go? Yeah. Well. Maybe that's where they got the rock for those uh, cairns along the way, on the long roads. I don't know, but, okay, here's what I do know. We have mm -hmm. more ruins over this way. There's that broken tower that we were looking at, and now we see down in this other valley these other ruins. So. Ruins upon ruins, and even Next week, we shall return to Skarlock Farm and continue our ruins exploration. Maybe we'll take uh, maybe we'll take Valori for a tour through the tombs here and see what she thinks. And then we will head back out and cover this, uh, this northern area of the South Downs. See if we can make any sense of this region here. And then we will continue over to... So we're at... Uh, we're at the spot on the map now. It was the tomb that was on the map. 
and then we will continue down towards Amon Fiern and stuff next time. Well, probably not next time. Okay. All right. Good start here this evening. Uh, some fascinating discoveries that I don't yet fully understand, but we'll see if we can continue trying to make sense of this region as we move forward. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.